allow me again to introduce our guest, uh, Jono Bacon, who is the author of People Powered. Uh, Jono, thank you for coming out today. And if you can thank you, tell us a little bit about your background and then talk about why you wrote this book. Yeah, so my background is that I, uh, first of all, it's great to be here. It's nice to meet everybody. And thank you, Mark, uh, for this. Um, so my background is that I've been building communities for about 20 odd years now. Um, I actually started out um, um, discovering about communities back in 1998, uh, when I discovered the open source technology movement that was starting to form. And I was just really fascinated about the notion of people coming together online to collaborate and build things together that they could all then share and benefit from. And I just wanted to really figure out what is the recipe behind that. The technology was interesting to me, but I was more interested in the, in the workflow and the psychology behind it. Um, so, you know, my career has kind of spanned. I started out um, running a, a, a large project called Ubuntu, which is an operating system that runs on the majority of clouds around the world. Uh, and then I went to XPRIZE, where I worked on these large incentive competitions like the $15 million Global Learning X Prize that was primarily funded by Elon Musk, um, and then went to GitHub, uh, which is where most technology is developed. Uh, but I've been a consultant for the last four years, about full time, where I work with a really broad range of companies from large companies and organizations like Intel, Microsoft, uh, Samsung, Sony Mobile, through to early stage startups. And are you from England? I'm assuming from your accent. <laughs> uh, technically, I'm originally from England, but I've been living in America for about 12 years. So I, I've got that English guy who sounds condescending accent. <laughs> Which I, is... I thought you have that English accent that sounds like you're a rock star. <laughs> you know what? My ego would like to believe that. <laughs> of course, of course. So um, you talk, uh, why did you write this book? So uh, the, the, the brief backstory in this is... Um, when I was at Canonical working on Ubuntu, I realized there was, there was this real opportunity uh, around community. This was something that in the open source world, people were generally fairly familiar with, but I realized from some of my you know, bits of work outside of, of technology that this notion of kind of online collaboration and people coming together to build things was kind of unusual. Um, so I decided to do three things. One was to write a book, one was to start a conference, and another one was to do some consulting. And I wrote a book called The Art of Community, and this was about 11, 12 years ago. And I wanted it to be that career book that everyone wants to write, that, you know, is kind of what people remember you for, I guess. Uh, and it was intended to be a general purpose book, but it was very technical, and it was, it was really designed for the practitioner. You know, it went through two editions. It's like 500 pages now. Um, and since I've been consulting, people would buy the book and they'd say, oh, I'm really looking forward to reading it. And I'd think, don't read it because you're going to get 10 pages in and you're just going to get lost immediately because it's going to get too tactical too quickly. So I knew I needed to write a business book. Um, and the goal of People Powered, which came out in November, was threefold. One was to explain the value proposition of communities for people who have no idea about this. Two is to kind of walk through a a, a higher level, but really detailed blueprint for how to build a community. And then the third was to talk about how to build it into a business. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, most business books kind of don't impress me, um, that the ideas are often impressive, but I just feel like you don't get enough out of a business book in many cases. It's, you know, a chapter will be an idea that's, that's drowned in examples for 35 pages. And I didn't want people power to be that. I wanted you to come away after you've read it with a really comprehensive understanding of the subject without it being too overwhelming. Well, I think you did a great job with this book. And I kind of walked in thinking the book would just be about online communities, but it's really about developing communities in a variety of different ways. And right. people forget that. Uh, I, I 
do a lot of marketing work and I would tell a law firm, you have your own community there. The accounting firm has its own yeah. community. Uh, the Alliance Club, you know, there are all these different communities. Now you have Black Lives Matter, which is an enormous right. community. And I just saw last night that there was a guy who is teaching people what fathers are supposed to teach you about shaving and everything. And he started mm. this two months ago and now he has 2.5 million followers. <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm sure he'll never be paying for ties and anything else again, because every, <laughs> every sponsor is going to want to get his stuff on there. So why, yep. do, why do communities get started? I think really what, it, what happens here is that it, you know, I often talk about this in, 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 in presentations and with clients. I think when you take away the computers, the screens, the social media networks, the content, all of the, all of the kind of the mechanics of how we come together into groups, there's a psychology that runs through us all as human beings. We sometimes forget we're animals. And a core element of this is that we're social animals and, uh, and we like to spend time together. And I think one of the reasons why communities form is because it's a natural, intrinsic human need is we need to spend time with each other. Now, sometimes that can be in the form of a family. Or it can be a knitting club or it can be a global technology movement or it can be a global activism movement. But that, the reason why is a core psychological element to this. I think the challenge with communities is that we get distracted by the detail. We get distracted by which forum should I use? Which, should I use Slack? Should I use something else? How, do I, how does gamification fit into this? What should I be doing on social media? What's the role of YouTube and video and direct response marketing? And I think that w when we approach communities, we need to approach it from kind of a behavioral economics perspective. We need to look at it in terms of what is the natural relationship between the individual and the group and how do they derive as much value from that interaction? And when we do that, that's how we build the most effective communities. Do, do you study a lot of psychology? And was your, I couldn't remember now, uh, is your degree in psychology? No, no, my, my degree is, is, in, uh, is in interactive multimedia communication. You know, this was back in the late 90s when CD-ROMs were changing the world. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I, was, I was cutting my teeth in Macromedia Director. So this, I, I am at best an armchair psychologist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the psychology of this because I think it is the, it's the, the underpinnings and the blueprint that, that drives a lot of this. I'll never forget about seven or eight years ago, my best friend from the UK was over here in California and we were having a few beers hanging out one night. And I was talking to him about how I was trying to figure out a way to essentially do what I was doing in people powered, which was to create a framework in which to think about communities. Cause my worry about communities was um, it kind of requires people who just have a sense for it. Um, and my worry was that the industry will never scale if a very small number of people have that sense for it. Um, almost like an art. And he said, you need to read about behavioral economics, which I'd never heard of. And that's when I started getting into the psychology end of things, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I, I do as well. Uh, how does one build a community in the modern era that's meaningful and lasting, especially with so many people trying to pull you into right. their particular community? Right. So I'll walk through kind of the approach that I take um, and I'll do this at a higher level. Um, and this is essentially what I cover in the book. So if people want to delve into it in more detail, then you can grab the book. So I think at the core of it is this, there's all communities fall into one of three models. I call them consumer champion and collaborator. So the consumer communities are people who get together because they have a shared interest. This can be, um, they're interested in black lives matter. They're interested in, um, you know, Game of Thrones, or they're interested in a particular musician, but they come together to talk about a shared common interest. 
Um, and usually that's as simple as putting up a forum or a Slack channel or something along those lines. They're relatively straightforward. Now, the second type is called, um, is called a champion community. And this is where people go the extra mile. And this is where they create content, their own events. And I would actually, you know, talking about obviously Black Lives Matter is very relevant, um, especially as we record this. That's another example. They're kind of a consumer as well as a champion community because people are organizing events, they're performing activism, they're creating content, they're creating material and videos and all this other stuff. So you want to put in place in those communities the mechanics for people to generate value, not just kind of meet and hang out with each other. And then the third are, are uh, collaborator communities. This is where people build things together, whether it's open source software, whether it's building applications that run on you know, app stores or plugins or whatever else. So I think the first thing is you decide kind of which of those models is most interesting to you. And then you need to figure out who your audience is. And I tend to distinguish audience based upon what they do. Are they organizing events? Are they creating content? Are they creating software? And then what you do is you, you first of all need to onboard them and define what the value is. To me, everything in the world is value. And one of the challenges that I see consistently with clients is we think about the value when we're brainstorming a community or anything and then as soon as we start getting into the day-to-day -day tactics we often forget the value so we need to start with what do our what do our community members want right so for example if you are building a community many people who are here probably have businesses and you want to build a community around your product right and one common element of communities is people to provide support and guidance so if that's the kind of community that you want what do your community members want well they want to have fun and talk to other people. They want to build their skills. They want to grow their career. They want to solve their problems. But you as a business, what you primarily are going to care about is growth, revenue, brand awareness. These are two very separate things. So you need to define the value on both sides. And then what we do is we bake that into our set of annual objectives. But the way I, which I would recommend we do this, and I know this is a, a long answer, but I think it's important That's to kind good. of cover the breadth of it, is, is to me the best experiences in life are journeys. Like if you go to Disney, from how you park your car to how you buy your tickets to how you go around the park to when you grab lunch, it's all really carefully designed. It's the same thing if you go to a nice restaurant, if you go and play a video game, the journey is very carefully crafted. We do the same thing in communities. So I developed this thing, I call it the community participation framework, where once you've picked your, your, your audience, right, you onboard them to generate that first piece of value for them. So if you're running a product community, for example, how do they go in there and ask a question and get a response? Um, or how do they go in there and provide an answer? How do they go in there and, and organize an event? And we need to break that down to be as simple as possible. So many communities, what they do is they go out and do tons of promotion and then people come into the community and they just can't figure it out. So you do all this outreach, but then people don't convert in the marketing sense. But then what they do is they go through three phases. Once they've generated that first piece of value, they become casual members, then they become regular members, and then they become core members. Um, and this is based upon retention. So usually your casual people are kind of showing up occasionally. They don't really know anyone. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. Once they've hung out for a couple of months, which is how long it takes to build a habit psychologically, they then become regulars. It becomes part and parcel of their world. And then a very small number of people will become your super fans. And that's how I tend to approach designing that journey intentionally. Interesting uh, that you say that because I started this show right after the pandemic just to keep people engaged. And right. now you're my 16th interview for the best business minds. And uh, right. I, I've been looking at the spreadsheets and I notice about 70% of the people that come on, uh, that listen to the show are the same people every single show. Right. Uh, 70%. Yeah. It's, 
it's, I think it's interesting because it is, you know, often people say, how do you build growth? How do you build retention? How do you build communities? It's all about building habits. You know, like if you want to quit boozing or get fitter, it's hard at the beginning, but if you can stick at it for two months and you can incentivize and you can keep people occupied for that two month period, that's how you get your retention. So, or you have a ha- pandemic and you can't get to the uh, uh, booze store and you have no <laughs> access to alcohol. There's probably a lot of people with AA yeah. now after they've gone through the first two months without a drink. No kidding. Uh, no kidding. W- what's typically offered in an online community that people want? I think what usually brings people in is frankly a very mercenary need. Um, you know, so for example, a lot of people join communities, um, because they're interested in a product or a service and they need to solve a problem. They, they join the community forum and they ask a question, they get their, their response and then they're out of there. Um, so the, the, the immediate kind of cold hearted value proposition is what usually brings people in. I think what keeps people is when they start experiencing the relationships and they start experiencing the camaraderie that starts forming. Um, one of the um, kind of, again, one of the, the failings that I think a lot of businesses make when they're, when they're building communities is that they think if we build it, they will come. And everybody says, I know that doesn't exist yet. They do it anyway. They say, I know if you build it, they won't, they won't come, but I created my forum and no one showed up. What's going on mm-hmm. to me. You've got to always have a reason for people to show up. So I'll give you an example. I'm a musician. What you can't see behind the camera is all these guitars. And I use a piece of technology called an Axe Effects, which is a guitar processor. I'm in their community. I've been in their community for a couple of years now. One of the main reasons, I very rarely post anything. The main reason why I show up is because they post new updates to the software for the device there. That's where I go and get them. So I can get new stuff that makes my product better. Um, I also just like reading the conversations from people who are way better at using the Axe Effects than me about how they solve problems and how they make it do interesting things. So that's usually what brings people in. But again, it's that those relationships that keep them. I think in your book, you mentioned Salesforce does it really well. Talk talk about that. Salesforce has been kind of a bit of a standout here. I mean, um, you know, historically, they were a very closed company. You know, they built this huge platform. I would have compared them a little bit more to Oracle um, in that regard. Um, But a little while ago, they really started investing a lot in building out a community and uh, they call them their trailblazers. And these are people who organize regional events. They provide support and guidance to each other. They do mentoring. Um, and a lot of companies, what they do is when they build a community, they, they, it kind of exists on an island. You know, there's the forum that sits out the side, but the, most of the company members don't join it and they don't really participate in it. Um, so it's kind of out to the side, like an enthusiast group. Um, and one of the things I've consistently said to clients and in speaking and writing is if you engage and, and integrate it into your business, you're going to get better results. And that's exactly what Salesforce did. So for example, they've got their Dreamforce conference, which completely decimates San Francisco every year in terms of traffic. Um, their community members are a significant component of this. They have you know, developer lounges and they have uh, community content and large meetups and all kinds of stuff. So, and they've grown to be over, I think there are over 1.8 million uh, like active members now. So they're a pretty remarkable example. I think Zoom is probably has that same potential, right? Because I, yeah. I don't know anybody today. I just posted an event this morning uh, for uh, about a hundred people and they were all talking about all the Zoom meetings that they were having. <laughs> They didn't mention any of the other platforms. 
And even my mom's 82 and she's on like Zoom with her yeah. friends. Not any other platform, <laughs> not Skype, not anything, just Zoom. Yeah, so I think you're right. It's, I, I'll never forget, we have a, a, young, a young boy. Uh, and of course, he's going to school on Zoom. Yeah. And I'll never forget going downstairs and hearing him and 10 other kids and the teachers all saying, I can't hear you. Your camera's not on, you know? uh, right. <laughs> which we're all used to in the business world. Yeah, yeah, this is what it is. So uh, what do you mean by social capital? You talk about that in the book. Yeah, this is, um, this is always a tricky topic because I think some people, um, when they start hearing this, they, they kind of tune out because it sounds a little bit hippie and, and kind of fuzzy and fluffy. Um, but again, going back to the fact that we're all animals, right? And what flows through communities and any group, whether you're building a business, whether you have a family, what, anything else, it's the psychology of human beings, right? That's the operating system in our, in, our, in our bodies. And social capital is essentially, it's kind of an unspoken currency that is exchanged between human beings. So, you know, let's say, Mark, you know, you've got your community and I come in today I don't have any social capital when I first walked in. Nobody knows me from Adam. Um, but what happens is as people talk more, as they share their ideas and their expertise and their insight, as they participate more, this sense of social capital grows. It's reputation, essentially. But what happens is in communities, this reputation, it's not a number. It's not written down. There's no um, formalized measurement of this it's kind of an unspoken acknowledgement that flows through all groups of people. Um, you know, everybody who's got a business will know this. There's just certain members of your team. and It doesn't really matter on hierarchy who are just, um, you really kind of respect and you trust and you, you apply more of your mental energy to because they've earned it. It's not necessarily because they're paid more because they have a better job title. If they've earned it through the contributions they've made to the group. So social capital is, 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 is what we want to happen in communities is we want to increase the flow of so social capital and increase the generation of it. Um, and this is difficult because most people, when they join a group of people, they don't naturally feel like they should put their hand up and start doing things and start volunteering because they, they're usually uncomfortable about being in a group of people they don't know. And that's one of the reasons why I designed that journey the way it is, the casual, the regular, and the core. Because in the beginning, when you're casual, you're so kind of um, buttoned up and you don't really know anyone. So you feel very uncomfortable putting your head above the, the pulpit that you don't, you therefore blocked from generating the social capital by making those contributions and earning the respect. And that's why we need to be intentional in providing mentoring and opportunities for those people to do things. Once you start becoming a regular and you know people, um, it's less of an issue because you have that confidence. You've already developed the, the social capital. People have recognized it. They thank you. They think, say, oh, you're doing a great job. Um, and therefore it's easier to do that. And what happens is that when you have an abundance of social capital, when it forms together, um, that's what builds belonging. And belonging is the thing that every community like, should focus on. That's the number one goal. Because when people feel like they belong somewhere, where if they go away for a couple of weeks on vacation or they take a couple of weeks off, where they feel like they would be missed, um, that is a, just a, that's a drug to all human beings. You know, we've all experienced it when you've been at a company for a number of years and you change jobs and it's really hard to do so because it's, it's not about the money. It's not about the role. It's about the people. Um, and when you're part of a family and when you're part of a, a local community, when you have that sense of belonging, that's what keeps people in communities for years. So that social capital is, is the currency that flows through that. 
I think sports is like the perfect uh, example of that because we become Eagle fans in Philadelphia and you become a diehard, but you always have something to look forward to because there's the next game, the next game, the next game. And so right. for these, for businesses, it's a matter of how do you get things to look forward to that you want to keep engaging over and yeah. over again. You, you write about three questions. You say, how can you make it easy for people to contribute and produce value? How can you help them contribute over and over again and build up their social capital? And how can you make them feel welcome and intrinsic to the community while building a sense of belonging? So how do you do that? I mean, I think the key thing is, is uh, we need to be intentional about it. So it, it, again, going back to the notion of, of building out this intentional journey, think about it this way. Um, the way a lot of communities form are pretty accidental. So let's say you have a business and you think, I heard this, uh, this balding English Lothario on, uh, on Mark's, uh, Mark's show. And I'm, th I'm interested in, in, uh, in, in one of these communities. And what you do is you, you basically set up a Facebook group and that's it. And you just say, hey, come and join my Facebook group. You'll get limited results. But what we do is if we basically say, okay, we're going to be very clear on what the value is we can generate for our members and what's, why it's going to be worth their time coming here. We're going to simplify the onboarding to get them in. So let's say somebody joins the group, they come in, they ask a question, they get a response and like, oh, that was really useful. Now, they, now they've switched the group into useful mode. Now what happens is they, they're in the, in the casual member phase and we use incentives to keep them joining. We recognize them when they, keep, when they start um, providing questions, uh, sorry, answers to other people. We invite them to uh, webinars and events. We give them free PDFs and content that keeps them there. Now they're thinking, I really want to kind of keep showing up to this place because it's consistently valuable. It's offering me things that make my, my job, my career, my life better. But then in addition to that, they're now meeting all of these other people who are enthusiastic about it and they're starting to build friendships. And at that point, in the same way that, you know, online training is great, but what really makes training and education work well, it's spending time with your peers and collaborative problem solving, right? In the same way that when we're at school or university or college, you'd sit there and listen to the teacher, but then the real fun was kind of sitting there with your friends and, and we're like, what did he mean by this? I don't know. Well, I think he meant this and, and kind of uh, working through it. That's the, the, the same thing with the community. So when that, that piece wraps around it, that's when the social capital starts forming because then you think, oh, I really respect these people in the community who've been here for a longer period of time. I want to uh, pay it back because there's a reciprocity element to communities as well uh, that people naturally want to pay it back when they've been provided with a lot of value. But then what they will also want is the validation from the elders in the community um, because they, they want to kind of achieve those, those results. This is what the, where the social element kind of comes in. You know, to give you an example, when I joined open source, the open source community back in 1998, I'd see all of these people who I was a huge fan of, people like Alan Cox and Linus Torvalds and Bruce Perrins and all of these people who were really prominent in the community back then. Um, and I, and I, as I kind of went down the rabbit hole, I wanted the validation. I wanted to know them. Um, and now I've become friends with them all. And that was really rewarding. Um, in keeping, in keeping us going through that. So when we construct that journey to facilitate those relationships, all based upon value, that's how you generate your social capital. Uh, I read that Larry Ellison's in the beginning Oracle, because it wasn't well put together, 
that created a community that wanted to keep fixing it. And he had a competitor that everything worked perfectly and they decimated the, the competitor because yeah. this community formed of developers and CIOs who enjoyed the, the process of actually fixing Oracle and making it work for them, which right. is counterintuitive to what people think of as in terms of launching a product. So you yeah. right here, and I find this to be very true. How do you ensure being authentic? Because consumer brands try to build communities, but get a sense that they are created for the sole purpose of selling their product or service, not for the common good. So you're a consumer product company and you've got all these, you know, marketing folks from Wharton and so forth trying <laughs> to, you know, develop something and, and, and make it authentic. But how do you truly make something authentic? That, yeah, this is a great question, Mark, and a dangerous one because uh, I need to control myself to not get on my little soapbox here about authenticity. The one thing that drives me mad is, um, I think there is a tension with a lot of marketeers, uh, especially people in direct response marketing, who um, they 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 listen to all of these gurus who talk about these marketing tactics. You know, people like Russell Brunson and John Cristani and Dan Locke and uh, you know Kiyosaki and all of these different people, um, and they talk through these techniques that generate enormous amounts of revenue. Um, and you know, and, and a lot of this is kind of psychologically orientated and they, they present these as hacks. Um, and I think when you go too much down that avenue, you focus more on the techniques than on the authenticity behind what you're, what, behind what you're doing. So to give you an example, um, I've seen a lot of these marketing gurus who will talk about their, what they call their squeeze pages, which is where you, you click on an ad and you go to this page and there's an offer, right? And you pop your email address in and then it takes you to the download and then you're in their list and that's how they nurture you. And these squeeze pages look like the side of a casino in Reno in the 80s, right? They're just full <laughs> of flashing lights and timers and buttons and testimonials. And I look at these pages and I'm like, I would be embarrassed if that came from me. Like, because it, it gets away from the authenticity. So to me, I think there's a natural tension in the business world between we know that these techniques work, but how do we balance that with coming across as an actual normal human being, a real human being? Uh, and I get that. Um, I think that we, we have less of a stress with that in communities because communities are not usually revenue generators, right? They generate value, but people don't build communities to, 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 build, to, nurture lead, to uh, generate leads. They're usually a place where you put prospects and customers in to keep them warm, to keep them interested and keep them excited about your products and your services and provide support. So it's easy to kind of have that authenticity. To me, it all boils down to one simple rule, which is focus on the value that the consumer wants, not the value you want to generate for yourself, right? So when I work with a lot of clients, they'll say, how do I make this work and deliver my business goals? And my response to them usually is generate the, the value for your, for, your, for your members first, and then those other business goals will come. You know, you'll get that. Um, that. That's the way to do it. And I think if you focus on their value, it, it, it prevents the Reno Casino, um, you know, landing pages and cheap marketing tactics and, um, you know, all of this kind of stuff from happening. Is there a consumer product company out there that's created community 
that you feel is really authentic? Has any of them been able to achieve that? Yeah, I mean, th- th- I think there's a few. Um, the one example that I often talk about is Fitbit, you know, who create these fitness bands. Um, their community is over 1.9 million, I think. And, you know, when you go to their community, it's not just about, hey, how do I get my, you know, charge three to work? Um, it's how do I swim more effectively? What's the value of intermittent fasting? It's the, 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 the value of the community is really in the world that the Fitbit sits in, not about the Fitbit itself. Now, people do ask questions about the Fitbit and they speculate what new features are going to be coming into it, like any community is going to do. But it's the, what wraps around it and people, you know, organize you know, virtual runs and all, all kinds of different things together. And I think Fitbit has really approached that quite nicely in how they've interfaced with them and how they give them information. Um, I, I'd, I'd also say another company that's done a good job here, and they're kind of consumer, but they're also kind of business as well, is Microsoft. You know, Microsoft has really figured out how to talk in a very human and, and real way to people. Um, and they've got, they've got hundreds of communities wrapped around their products and their services. So those two really kind of spring to mind. I think those. I think Microsoft's community took off, took off because once we all knew that was a standard operating um, uh, operating platform, then you start building things around that. Like whoever comes out, just like Apple, has yeah. uh, this enormous uh, following and so forth. Uh, yeah. is, there, is there any small consumer products that you've seen that you said, "Man, these guys have really done a good job uh, of building community." On the, in terms of the smaller, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've seen, for example, um, you know, uh, Michael Adler in the chat actually mentioned Peloton when Peloton were, um, not the behemoth that they are today. Uh, my wife and I were fairly early adopters of Peloton and I actually would use them as a good example because for them, their community was less the traditional set of perform and off you go. It was more the way they integrate a community into their product. It was the relationship between the, 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 the trainers and the, the riders. It was things like, I'll never forget um, getting on, on a ride on my birthday and they shout my name out. The, the, the trainer shout my name out, which you know, doesn't happen as much now because there's so many more people in those rides. Um, and I think the integration of that, the integration with Facebook, I think they were a good example uh, the tricky thing with smaller consumer products is, of course, consumer products is such a big business that typically you don't see as many community examples in, in consumer products in the earlier stages because they're just focused on making their products work. Um, but there are, there are various examples of it. I mean, like Pebble, I think, were another example some years ago when they first came out. But where we see a lot of this is in kind of B2B businesses, especially smaller startups. There's lots and lots of startups who who form and they build pretty amazing communities wrapped around it. Like, you know, Docker is an example. I'd include Styra as an example of this There's a number of them. So, uh, you know, once you've built this platform uh, um, and bringing people together, there's a lot of responsibility involved because now we're looking at Facebook and they have about 3 billion users. And I have to say, I'm a fan of Facebook because it allows me to follow all my family members and, and, right. and friends. And yeah. so forth. I mean, I see a, a tremendous amount of value. I even see value. And the fact that the only the ads pop up that I'm actually interested in, uh, which yeah. they've been getting killed for recently. But what's the responsibility of building up a community? Uh, because now the government is looking to regulate these folks and, and hold them accountable mm. for misinformation, which I'm actually kind of for. The fact that I don't want to see people posting things that get somebody else killed 
because they've made yep. this up. You know, like what happened with Hillary Clinton, where they yep. said, oh, she was uh, trafficking people. And the guy walks into a pizza shop with a, a, an AK-47. Right, so, right. What's the responsibility uh, when you built these communities? I think there's kind of two questions in there. There's one, which is the responsibility within communities that folks like the people who are watching this uh, and listen to this are going to be building. And then there's kind of the, the social media companies and the platforms themselves. I think the responsibility for the businesses who build them um, is relatively straightforward in, in, in principle, but not as always is not straightforward in execution, which is I think we always need to focus on a consistent stream of value that we deliver to people and creating an environment that's safe for people and inclusive. Um, so we need to be proactive. You know, just throwing up a code of conduct is not enough in building an inclusive community. We need to be proactive in, in leadership. People emulate their leaders. So we need to make sure that leaders are inclusive and, and they're focused on building a diverse community, not just diversity of, of uh, like racial diversity and sexual, sexual diversity and all these different pieces that we often talk about, but diversity of ideas as well, diversity of perspectives. You know, sometimes communities can turn into echo chambers where if someone has a challenging viewpoint to the norm, then they get shut down. This is one of the downsides of Reddit, for example, is if you have a, often when people get downvoted in Reddit, it's not necessarily because they, the, the, the content of their ideas is bad. It's because they disagree with the, with the norms in that specific space. So I think it's incumbent on organizations and leaders to be intentional about building that diversity and inclusion of ideas and people. Um, and then always thinking like, what can we do to deliver value today? Like, what can we do to excite them? A community is a group of, of super excited people, you know, in the same way that you have... 50,000 people form together at a concert. And in that one hour, hour and a half of that concert, you want every minute to be exciting to your audience. You need every minute to be exciting to your community members. Mm -hmm. I think then the second piece of this will be the social media networks. Um, and I think, Mark, you and I have kind of similar ideas in this. I'm a fan of social media. I think it's overall good. Um, uh, I think they're, they're in an impossible position because they're, they're being exposed expected to be able to mitigate natural human behaviors and sometimes people human beings can be um, um they can be not particularly diplomatic in the way that they discuss things social media platforms are never going to be able to get away from that like they're always going to have people who are inarticulate in how they dis discuss things and therefore you will get bickering but what they should be doing in my mind is 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 some kind of responsibility in terms of a the safety of their members um, so certainly threatening or bigoted content should be removed, uh, but B also informing people when content may not be accurate. You know, like there was the big spat recently about, uh, labels applied to, to president Trump's tweets about maybe they're inaccurate or misinformation and Facebook are doing more of this. I think that's a good thing. You know, I'd rather someone knows that, uh, this might not be an accurate article, um, or an accurate perspective. And I think that's important because as we all know, we all get these emails forwarded to us with MP4 files attached, you know, extolling some political viewpoint. Uh, and that's happening now in social media networks as well. Yeah, I agree totally. If anything is, is, uh, is anything that somebody tweets, especially a politician and it's inaccurate uh, and fact check tells you it's inaccurate, I would like to know that is it, it is inaccurate. Because yeah. people run with those stories and tell everybody else that, as if that was accuracy. Uh, one yeah. of the questions we have here uh, is, how do you build a community which is focused on social good that can also help 
and building a product which can help the community experience products which can help them. So how do you build something that's focused on social good as well as a, a product that can help those people focus on the social good? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. What a, what a wonderful question. So I think one of the, one of the, the great benefits of, of a community that's focused on, um, um, I guess you could say a, a philanthropic or an activist mission, something along those lines, is one of the reasons why um, many communities work better than others is we, again, this is a behavioral economics thing that was talked about by Dan Ariely, I think it was in Predictably Irrational, that we as human beings, we need to do things that are meaningful. So if you join a business and you feel like the work is meaningful, it's moving the needle, it's having an impact, we're going to wake up in the morning excited to be part of that. If you're just showing up and you're at, you know, you're, you're working in a business that's kind of boring and uninteresting and not really doing anything particularly new, it's going to be way less, it's going to be way less interesting to most people. So the benefit of if you're focusing on a social good project is by definition, you're doing work that's got meaning because you're moving the needle in that area of social good. So I think the benefit of that is, it's easier in some ways to attract an audience of people who are excited about the mission to keep them, keep them um, engaged. The challenge with, that I've seen with a lot of social good communities, and um, this may be a controversial viewpoint, but it's what I've seen, and it's not the case in all situations, is that a lot of people get involved in philanthropy or social good because they like the squishy feeling of doing something meaningful, but they don't want to roll up their sleeves and get to work. Um, I remember when I was at XPRIZE, we saw this all the time, is that there was a lot of people who, XPRIZE is all about solving major problems in the world. Like the Global Learning XPRIZE was building tech to teach kids how to read or don't have access to a, don't have access to a teacher. And there was a lot of people who wrapped themselves around XPRIZE who were really well-intended good people, but they wouldn't do anything. They just talk about how they supported it on, on social media. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Other people would give money and then they didn't want to do anything other than just giving money, which was great. And there were people who would get to work and, and build the projects and whatever else. So I think when you have social good missions, you need to make sure that um, the good intention can be converted into action as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Otherwise, you just create, frankly, a lot of cheerleaders, which is great. In, in, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't lack value, but it won't move the needle in your, in your mission. Now, in terms of products, the great benefit of products, I think, is that products are tangible, real things that people can wrap their heads around. So I would then recommend, in terms of the product piece, is that you build essentially a product workflow around it. So communities can be a, an amazing source of insight for product market fit. Um, you can understand what people need. You can, but then translating that down into kind of in the tech world, we call it the software development lifecycle, where you brainstorm ideas, but then you analyze those ideas for validity. Is this worth the investment of time and energy? Um, do we have data to suggest that we should work on this feature as opposed to this other feature? Communities can be a great source of input for that, but then you've got to put it through a machine that asks the hard logical questions of should we do this or do we just want to do this? Uh, and I think it's really important to do that. But the good news about social good, and to a degree, we, I, I experienced this a lot when I was working at Canonical with Ubuntu. A lot of people see open source and free software as, as fundamentally something that makes the world a better place because it closes large proprietary monopolies. Is people will be involved in it because they cared about the mission. But we need to be, we need to include people in doing so. You know, so for example, when I was at Canonical, we built 
the Ubuntu phone, we didn't have any of the core applications for it, calculator, email, calendar, those kinds of things that you use every day. And we reached out to our community to build those applications. And within six months, we had 10 applications built. Um, but we had to be intentional about taking all the miserable stuff out of building apps uh, and, and moving it to the side. So coordinating the meetings, tracking the meeting notes, helping to get the designs in place, uh, helping with the testing and the, uh, and, and, and the administrative elements, that was what was important. So, yeah. So two things I want you to talk about is, one is what's the bacon method? I read that in the book. <laughs> uh, and we're not talking about the Kate, Kevin Bacon method. We're talking about your <laughs> Different method. bacon. Yeah. Uh, and two is, uh, what's the cost of the financial cost of really building a successful community? Because I think people yep. way underestimate what that takes. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the Bacon method is, um, is, is kind of what I kind of somewhat flippantly refer to as my approach to doing things. And uh, I, I wrote about it in the book as kind of the net. I don't actually call this the Bacon method, but people have, have started referring to it as this. The basic gist is, is, is this is how I approach building a community strategically. The first thing we do is we understand what the, what the goals of the business are um, and also what the goals of your community are. Because if you build a community that only focuses on what's cool for the community and you don't align it with the broader goals of the business, which may be brand growth or revenue or whatever else, then ultimately somewhere down the line, the business is going to say, why are we doing this community thing? And they'll shut it down. So you need to make sure that those two pieces of value are aligned. Now what we do is we, I'm going to retread a little bit of ground that we talked about earlier on. Um, this is where we now pick our audiences and you pick no more than three target audiences that you want to focus on in your community and you define the value that those audiences would want. So for example, it could be people who want to produce content or it could be executives who want to spend time with each other in a, in a kind of a business development setting. And you define like, what do those people really want out of that? And then what we do is we build what I call big rocks. And this is essentially a set of annual objectives. This is where you say, we're going to do these five things in the next year. And you put these into a document. I have a template on my website, for, templates on my website for all of this stuff for when people buy the book. Um, and the goal of the big rocks is it's no more than five or seven pages. It's high level. It just talks through what are we going to do? Um, what are the deliverables and how are we going to measure it? Uh, and then what you do is you work with your team and get a ton of input on that because one of the, the, the anti patterns of communities is that, is that people often we'll bring a community manager and they'll build it in a vacuum and they'll, then they'll go and essentially try and wow people with a PowerPoint deck. And you need to get input from your customer success team, your marketing team, your, in, your, your, your exec team, all of these different groups need to play a role in it. If you don't get skin in the game, if you don't get other people's fingerprints in your strategy, you won't build the buy-in and it won't succeed because communities are cross-functional in nature. So you bring people in, they provide input on, on the big rocks. And then what we do, is let's say you've got five objectives in your big rocks. What you then do is for each of those objectives, you break that down into all of the individual tactics that you'd need to do to deliver it. So let's say one of the big rocks is setting up a discourse community forum. Discourse is a, uh, uh, an open source platform that I often use. Well, we're gonna need to deploy it and we're gonna need to configure it and set the categories up and we're gonna need to bring the members in and all these different elements. So what we're now doing is when you look at the tactics, which are over here, the individual item that takes no more than half a day to complete, it's very, very tactical. We know 
which objective it's connected to, which we know the different teams are fed into, and where that broader objective is connected to the value. So this means that we never, ever, using this model, ever do work that isn't connected to the broader value of the community. And as I mentioned earlier on, the big problem with a lot of project management and business is people sit in meeting rooms and Zoom calls and they come up with these amazing ideas for, for something, whether it's community or something else. And then when they start boiling it down into the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff, they start losing sight of the value. And then they're just talking about all the details. And that's the reason why I kind of structure it that way. And then I've got like a bunch of maturity models that I apply to how you then measure that work uh, in an ongoing basis. And I like to bake it down into what I call cycles, which are, you know, you take your objectives and you run a six month chunk of it. And then there's kind of milestones that go through that, that I walk through in people powered as well. And that means that you're baking the learning into the business. Because when I'm a consultant, for example, and I'm working with a new business, my goal is to educate them. It's, it's give them a, a blueprint and a strategy, but it's really to build those skills in. So they're not dependent on me as a consultant, because that's not good for anyone, especially them. Um, and you need those regular milestones and the cadence to regularly bake those skills in. So that's how I approach it. So what's the cost, not for you, but like when somebody's going to go build these communities, right. what do they have to think of? Because like even for me to do this, all right, so there's only a cost of my time because I'm actually reading two books a week, making all the notes, everything. But now if I yep. want to make this even bigger uh, and I want to uh, put this on other platforms, you know, it's like $2,000 a month to have somebody start, you know, doing it in a way that it's on switch and bunch of uh, Twitch and a bunch of other, other things yep. and, yep. Uh, and to uh, edit it and whatever has to be done. So when people are starting to build these communities, what should their financial thinking be? How much is this going to cost them? Right. I think the key thing here is, is that it can kind of be as long as a piece of string. Like I've worked with some clients, for example, where, they've had half of one person's time working on their community. And I've worked with other clients where they've hired 20 community managers to come in and run it. Um, uh, The good news about communities is that you can start small, test it, get some results. And then if you feel like it's generating value for you, you can then continue to expand it. Um, The biggest cost, frankly, is going to be time, is that you cannot build a community without having someone own it. You know, you need somebody who is going to, who is going to need to, get your, the clubhouse where your community members hang out, whether it's a forum or a Slack channel or something else, you need to get that set up and you need to regularly be creating content and material that can bring people in. But the good news is that if you get creative, you can really do it on a shoestring. I mean, think about it this way. If you just look at the open source world, which is built technology that powers the internet and devices and clouds and whatever else, the, there, there is a long tail of thousands of open source projects that are, that are formed with no money whatsoever. They're just volunteer projects. Um, and I remember when I started some earlier communities, I'd run an event and I'd borrow a projector and I'd ask my friends to speak. And, you know, uh, I, there's, there's, there's free forums out there you can use. There's, you, your blog can go on Medium so you don't have to pay for a blog. It's really time is the main thing. So I would... I would say that I can't give you a number because it varies depending on what people want to do, but you don't need to have a significant team or a significant amount of rev, um, a significant budget to be able to build a really thriving community. I would tell you that uh, to run two programs a week just for an hour, and that's about 20 hours of time. 
uh, right. that I have to put in because I've got to read these books and make notes and, and, and oh, actually yeah. look up information. Uh, as, as you know, if you're not just throwing it out there, what's the, you're a, you're a lot more informed Mark than most people who do these kinds of, <laughs> kinds of interviews, by the way, it, it, it shows. <laughs> well, thank you. What's the biggest community that's failed and why did they fail? And what did you learn from it? Um, this is probably a community that uh, I think I'd, I'd come up with two examples I'm sure everybody has heard of one, but maybe not the other. One is going to be MySpace. Um, I think My, MySpace was a real missed opportunity um, because what they did is they built a platform where people could share music and, and art and whatever else. But, uh, and you had all of, these, all of these communities thriving in individual little pockets, right, around an individual MySpace page. But what they didn't do is provide the tools and the facilities for those communities to prosper. Um, so consequently, it just kind of burnt itself out. And then Facebook comes along and MySpace is done at that point. Yeah. So I, I'd say they're probably one of the most prominent um, kind of general purpose examples. I would also include Dig. Remember Dig? And Friendster. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Friendster, you know. And to be honest, it's easy, to be, it's easy for me to be kind of snooty about this, but I think we need to remember where we were back then. They were blazing the trail. And a lot of people who blaze the trail blaze it the wrong way and that's perfectly normal the second example i would give is a company called docker that's in the tech world that, that um uh, creates infrastructure software for for you know it's kind of in the earlier stages of the cloud and they just they didn't balance the relationship between the corporate entity and the community very well and it caused a lot of division a lot of problems there as well so do you believe all communities should be private or should they all be public as a general rule, I would always recommend that most communities are public. Um, and I would recommend that most communities tend to exist in places like forums as opposed to Slack channels or Facebook groups. The reason for that is when you have a public community, the discussions, the, the Q&A and everything else gets indexed on Google. And that's a, that's, that's a significant source of inbound traffic for people joining your community. Um, people go to Google to ask questions. Now. They don't go to your website. So... That's why I would recommend public, but it, it really depends. Like if you're building a, an intimate, like I'm working with a company right now, we're building kind of an intimate community of branding executives. That wouldn't work if it was public and that wouldn't work in a forum. Execs don't go to forums. You know, they're going to communicate via email, for example. So it really depends on the audience. Uh, what's the big rock concept? The basic gist of big rocks is, is that you, is that you, you create a set of objectives, these big meaty objectives for delivering something that's going to move the needle. And then you break it down into smaller pebbles, which are your individual tasks. It's basically a way of the big rock is kind of the, the, the bigger chunk. And then the tactics are, are all the small pebbles. It's kind of what I walked through earlier on when I said about the, the objectives and then you break it down into the tactics. They're two different ways of looking at detail. Um, you know, again, if you're talking to your stakeholders, to your executive team, they're not going to want to see the tactics in most times. They're going to want to see the big rocks. So here's the two final questions. Uh, what is, yeah. what's, what's the biggest mistake made by people trying to build a community? Hmm. And what are the metrics that determine success? So the biggest mistake, I think, is that people hire a community manager. They bring them in. And then they act, that community manager acts like uh, an ambassador. And they just, they, they build this little community. It lives on an island. And what the, the, the business doesn't do is it doesn't integrate the community into the business. You need to say to your employees, 
this is where our customers hang out. This is where we need to spend time. It's as important as our product. If you don't do that, if you don't integrate your team into the community, train them, incentivize them, motivate them, your community is going to struggle. So that's one of the biggest mistakes. In terms of the metrics um, of how you measure this, this is a massive discussion that we can't squeeze into two minutes. But at a high level, um, I would always recommend that you, you, you ask what are the questions we don't know the answer to? So for example, if we don't know whether um, our community is being efficient in terms of providing support to people, I would want to measure, for example, the time to first response on a new forum topic. I'd want to determine how long it takes to get to the resolution of a forum question. Those are the metrics. I think we need to start with the questions where we don't have insight to determine the metrics. There is a data fetishism that's happening in the world where people want to set up hundreds of graphs, and that is a, that's a, a distraction. So focus on what are the questions we don't know the answers to, and what are the four or five metrics, the minimum number of metrics we can use to understand how to answer those questions with data, and that will tell you what your metrics are. Uh, here's my, actually, my last final question. Do you ask, or, or does it just come organically? Do you ask your members of your community to promote the community? or because they like it so much that you're just going to do it on their own and let other people know, oh, you should be a part of this community. I'm glad you asked this, Mark, because yeah, this is actually something, I think one of the most important things to share in this discussion uh, that people don't realize with communities. Um, often people will say, how do I get my community to do what I want them to do? Go and ask them. It's amazing if you just go up to them and say, hey, would you be interested in piece, providing a piece of content? Or would you be interested in helping with this webinar? Would you be interested in promoting this new thing we're doing on social media? Nine times out of 10, they'll say yes, especially if they're in that regular phase where they've seen the value, they've been nurtured. It, 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 most people feel uncomfortable to go and volunteer themselves, but they'll be happy to, to respond to those queries. Jono, you have been fantastic. I so enjoyed it. And of Thank course, you. I love Likewise. the accent because half of my family lives in England. And so <laughs> I really enjoy hearing the accent. And are you British? You always sound so smart. You know, <laughs> Thank you. It's just always the common the case. Well, you have a great weekend. And, and thanks, everybody, for coming and listening to uh, this another edition of The Best Business Minds. Jono, have a great weekend. And I hope you'll write another and book you. so we can bring you back. Sounds great. I'd love to come back. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Take care. Have a good weekend.